welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast, friends. We are here practically live, all in California. Yes, Nate is out of town. He was going to be <laughs> doing this from a hotel, but uh, I don't know. I was going to make up something for why that didn't work out, but I actually have no idea why it didn't work out. <laughs> but we've pulled in a, a special co-host today. He was on the show a few months ago. Uh, we have Dr. Brian Kay, one of our favorite pastor pirates from the past. Welcome, Brian Kay. Thanks, Aaron. It's good to be with you here, as usual. Well, not usual. It's it, unusual to be on the show with you, but it's <laughs> usual to be talking to you. Uh, we're going to be pulling you in more. So Brian grew up in San Luis Obispo, California, but has since moved and is now just outside of Berkeley, California. He is currently recording. Are you at your home or your office right now? I'm at the office. He is at his office in Orinda, California, wearing Birkenstocks with a bowl of granola right next to him. <laughs> the entire room is draped in uh, beadwork and <laughs> macrame. And tie-dye and, scarves. Uh, yeah, and I've got my um, pot dispensary sign uh, in neon, like blinking outside the window. <laughs> I was wondering what that buzz was. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, do you, do you want to dispel just like right up front for all the people around the country that if you say Berkeley, will mm-hmm. have very specific ideas. Yeah. So here right. you are, Mr. Right. Christian guy, going from San yeah. Luis Obispo. Uh, what have you been most yeah. surprised about the Berkeley right. area? Um, let's see. And it, you know it's true. I am. A, I'm not like a softy Christian. I'm, I kind of mean business on my on my on my Christian faith. So it's not like uh, you're not tapping into a a guy that's been made uh, mushy. So that's the guy. That's me. And so in the middle of Berkeley, I've yeah, I've still. Uh, I think I think it still gets a bad rap as a town. There's plenty of uh, grounded, sensible, uh, dare say, Christian people here. Although I was watching. Um, <laughs> You dare say. <laughs> I dare say. It's, uh, though I was watching, um, what's that show on HBO? Oh, oh Silicon Valley, which uh-huh. I don't know. It's uh, not officially endorsing it. Uh, there's plenty of inappropriate material. However, as a show, there's one of the characters in the episode I was watching last night, and it all takes place in, in Silicon Valley, and it's not so far from like the Berkeley culture, actually. And the character said something like, huh, the practice of Christianity is borderline illegal in Northern California, <laughs> which it's, it's funny cause it's almost true. However, I do think the Bible belt does, uh, I've got plenty of Bible belts relatives. It makes it okay to say this, but I think they do think it's wackier than it really is. There's a lot of, I don't know, there's I, a lot of scientists running around here. A lot of, I just remember when I was staying there and I got kind of stuck down at the college and mm-hmm. there were signs at every corner that says no right, no turning right. And because it's all left turn one way around the school. <laughs> okay. And I just thought like I that was, that was the most classic, like, That's... come on, you guys, you're just walking into the stereotype <laughs> with no turning right anywhere around the college. Turning left is always allowed. However. <laughs> uh, um, so, actually, the funniest thing I saw a sign down there, too, is around Christmas time a couple years ago. And to, so this is the ultimate answer to your question, I guess, is there was a um, protest sign about Christmas trees, like decrying Christmas trees as um, like the something like like down with Christmas trees. And there's like a red slash through a, a picture of a Christmas tree. And it was something about like how it supports a culture of death. 
or something. It was the idea of having a dead tree in your house is um, a, a deeply grievous uh, offense against life itself. Or something. And that's, that struck me as a pretty kind of a Berkeley moment. Yeah, that that fits. I mean, you're really not helping debunk anything with that story, but I, I I'm kind of with you. I I remember the first the first novel I wrote at the beginning. It was all set in like Alabama, and mm. the main character at the beginning is a little boy, and he mentions like the turning of the tree. And I remember writing the comment like how strange it was that everybody would travel so far to basically see death and decay occurring. And I, I just remember writing that and wow. thinking, like, that is, like, the saddest thing. That's so – because I like the changing colors of trees, but it's just like, yeah, the leaves are dying. And uh, <laughs> their, their little leafy corpses are changing colors and then dropping to the ground where they will dissolve. Wow. You you uh, you kind of preempted the whole – my whole s- – sign thing with that like you might were you responsible personally for the sign <laughs> that i saw Aaron? i think I, a, I was probably reading yeah. too much ann sexton which did uh-huh. show up on my triple x church report you can ask phil steckling about this because <laughs> he called me to say like hey there was like a lot of activity on your thing uh-huh. and i was like yeah. what are you talking about i wasn't looking at porn and i'm like send me that report and he sent it to me and i look and it was literally typing in the word ann sexton a yeah, triple X uh-huh. church just grabbed it at the yeah. sex part of Sexton and reported it like me. a ton of sex. Was it a ton of sex you were searching for? <laughs> it was, was a ton the... of it. It was. They're like, what is, <laughs> what genre is this? So, yeah. So what's been going on since last time we chatted with you? Mm, let's see. Well, you did remind me that I did purchase a motorcycle in the last uh, 10 days. My first, it felt like a really manly thing to have done, which I'm really happy to be able to brag about it on a, podcast at a national level and and are you feeling the wondrous freedom meditating in the breeze yeah mostly fear is what i'm feeling right now because (laughs) i i I barely know so i took a safety class i took a what did i do i took a in california you if you take a three-day motorcycle safety class they waive the licensing requirement of taking the um you know going to the dmv and driving around in a figure eight pattern you don't have to do that but you have to take a three-day class you're on a little tiny motorcycle and they teach you all this great stuff. So I, I took that. That was like essentially my first time on a motorcycle. Then I just felt the, uh, I don't, I don't know what it was like a, an impulsive part of me went out and got this, um, very cool looking, pretty inexpensive, small engine, uh, kind of cafe racer style motorcycle, which I have in the garage now, but I've taken it out about five times. And every time I feel like I'm taking my life in my hands, now, so it doesn't people, feel macho Yeah, people need to understand that uh, Dr. Brian Kay doesn't just do things. He saturates himself in the idea of a thing. So when, doc, when Dr. Brian Kay came to, I don't remember, I'm bad with time, but when he came uh, up back down uh, to San Luis so that we could watch a Pixies concert, he had a new Cafe Racer leather jacket <laughs> But it wasn't, you just don't buy a leather jacket. You had the biggest philosophy of leather jackets. And how long? It takes mm. like 15 years to break in your leather jacket. Well, they say it's only two, according oh, to the Oh, okay. Way. Well, yeah. 15, I was close. <laughs> <laughs> to, really, to really make it your own, I guess. But you got, you got to commit. This is like two years of full committing to your jacket. Yeah, I and think you, so. And you even slept in it because you read this will yes. help the process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I did not go as far. There's another whole school of thought on leather jackets that says that you should take a bath with the jacket <laughs> and then get out of the bath and then don't take the jacket off until the jacket's dry. <laughs> Three days later. That's like a completely well-established school of thought, but I, I didn't go that far. But the reason you're on the show is because you say things like school of thought on leather jackets. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. You, you take this stuff seriously, and I appreciate that <laughs> a lot. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, speaking of updates, though, you, didn't you just finish a new album? You you finish albums every, like, 18 months there's a new album, but didn't you just finish a new one? I did. I uploaded a new album to Noise Trade, and uh, the, the hard copies will be coming to my house next week. So, yeah, I, I tried to do it more for... For the winery crowd, the the album that I usually sells very was back when I was playing more for bar crowds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this has kind of some more ballad, a lot more piano stuff in it than I did on the last album. So that was kind of fun. Was um, it more of like a uh, like a Tommy Bahama feel in the uh, in some of that? <laughs> Sorry, that's my that's my winery guys that hang out at wineries. I feel like thirty percent of them are willing wearing Tommy Bahama shirts. Yeah, but Does that mean you, to you? you you know yeah, but you know Paso, Paso wine people. You get the tourists from you know I was playing at Eberly, the place of the caves. Right. So that was super cool, um, and you get yeah. a lot of San Jose people coming to that. But you also get Paso. You know, you get yes. guys in their cowboy hats that actually work on ranches, and then they're sitting True. there sipping a Cabernet. So yeah, that's you know, right. you that's better true. you better be ready with Frank Sinatra and Johnny Cash because you don't know what the huh. crowd's gonna be. Oh, that's but yeah. but I think you will enjoy that. There's one track that I was, <laughs> I I took a lot of tracks off. There's probably six songs sitting there that'll maybe go on a later one that were just too kind of slow and uh, melancholy. But let's see, it's track three. I shouldn't have put on because it was just uh, hey. Ode to Depeche Mode. I'm going to just do a full <laughs> '80s synthesizer mm-hmm. song. It has no place at all on the album, but my kids love okay. the song. Yeah, save it. So it's just it's... kind of shocking when I was going over <laughs> mixes with a producer who was giving me some ideas. That came on, he kind of cocked an eyebrow and looked up, and it's like, yeah, sorry, but it's staying. And he had ideas for like, well, why don't you do a new intro that's all acoustic guitars, and, and basically however you start it, people's brains will be like yeah this fits with the rest of the album and then it morphs into this he is totally right it was a great idea and i was not about to go back to recording tracks so okay okay anyways well it's, don't, maybe it's you could done. build a whole album around it like a whole use that as a anchor song for a whole new depeche mode kind of <laughs> electronica like you could because uh, it's a yeah there's such an you are a renaissance that. man that is one of your musical gifts is the ability i do think this is true about you is you can kind of inhabit almost any genre and be comfortable in it and then start producing music within that genre <laughs> well, at, a, at, a, at a credible level. That is that is very kind of you. Uh, I think it's probably because I just don't care about my audience as much as I should, where you you know say, oh, you like this kind. I'm just sitting here bored thinking, eh, I'm going to write one of those songs. I started a rap song, by the way, that I kind of hoped would be finished for this album. <laughs> but do you know how many words you have to write for a rap song? It's insane. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot. I can I have a whole new respect. One of my sons loves rap and he always when we go on trips will play me his favorite songs and then I'll make him google the lyrics and we'll 
read through them and that's always fascinating because there's some really amazing lyrics but uh now having worked on this song which probably will never be on an album uh, Mm. i have a total new respect for just the volume of words that is Uh, on a full rap album i completely agree and i haven't talked about this with anyone so i'm glad we're getting into it in a public venue like this but (laughs) i have this little like I don't know when I'm going to go public with this theory. I guess it's right now. I'm going public right now. Something about like rap music, and I'm not the first guy in line to buy rap or to listen to it. Although I'm, I'm getting there. But they, it, the, the whole like that whole style of music takes words more seriously than almost any other genre. But you know, the mere volume of words is one proof of that. But like the crafting it, and it's the, the, the meter. And it's and so my kind of feel about it. And this could be going too far, so you can check me. But it feels like it. Uh, it's like the it, it uh, in the as believers as Christians, we're in a, a you know in a tradition that takes words, the word, the word of God, uh, the Son of God is the word. Like word is kind of core to who we are. We believe in revelation and receiving truth, and uh, and rap music for better or for worse, at least the the vehicle of it is like it also takes words seriously. That's why I'm kind of on a little revolution of discovering like certain Christian rap artists that not only are they take the medium of word heavy music seriously, but they're also wrapping those words around aspects of God's truth in a way that, I don't know, delivers it to my soul at a pretty profound level. I, I would so, love to make a list because that's when, when I've listened to some of the songs that my son Caleb shows me and we're driving, like driving to your house, for instance, Mm-hmm. Uh, there are certain Christian rappers whose goal and their art is taking some deep theological truths mm-hmm. and being practical about it and then also delivering it in with all the power that they yep. feel. Like there's an intensity that is it's very much like gospel preaching, really. If you listen mm-hmm. to a gospel preacher, I mean, E.V. Hill. If you haven't listened to E.V. Hill listeners, just YouTube that to death. That was a man who did not just have his gospel preaching on, but he had some of the deepest content. In fact, YouTube finally has him giving his wife's eulogy, which is one of my favorite E.V. Hill sermons ever. Hmm. And hmm. Wow. he was just, any time that I got to hear him speak in Los Angeles, he was a pastor in, in South Central L.A., and any time I'd hear he was at like a Promise Keepers or something, I'm just like, I am there, E.V. I'm coming. I'm coming home, baby. Wow. So, wow. But, I don't think I've heard Oh, him. my gosh. YouTube that guy. But okay. I think rap to me has that gospel like, I'm not just going to deliver these words. I'm going to deliver the word and I'm going to do it with power. Yeah. And there's it, a way both yep. rap and gospel preaching can use that uh, to overcompensate words that aren't as powerful. But when you get powerful words with that yes. powerful delivery, hello. Yeah. When the medium and the message coincide that's what you're talking about when the medium and the message mesh miraculously (laughs) because they like they like a a good rapper you can tell they mean it there's not they're not ironic about it it's not uh it's not uh silly it's not silly it's it's, uh it's kind of it's going to come right down your throat they're ramming it down your throat which reminds me of the prophets that's that's like reminds me of isaiah and jeremiah they kind of meant business those guys they Uh, were actually hebrew Rappers. People don't know that, but <laughs> Isaiah actually gave his messages to the people uh, with uh, another young Hebrew man beatboxing. 
Uh, it's, yes, they did. I think it's in the, some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It doesn't come up in our text. It's, a, it's the it's the they haven't unraveled that scroll yet. It's, they're still <laughs> working on it. The, uh, and my one Christian rapper for you did Evie Hill. So my one specific shout out is going to be to a rapper named Shy Lin. How do we get on this whole rap thing? I don't know. It's awesome. Uh, it, it's I can't remember how to spell Shy Lin. S H A I L Y N N E or something. He's I think he's out of Philadelphia. He's a pastor and a rapper, but the the profundity the theological profundity of his lyrics are um it, it's 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 beyond what most of our uh i would say even our kind of theologically mature church members might have he's he's a, it's a it's like going to catechesis school to listen to his <laughs> it's almost too much it's almost too uh heady but it's still rap and so it's still fun so, <laughs> it's still fun he's a, he has a whole song on the hypostatic union but, you know, the union between the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus, how that's like <laughs> down the middle, it's like a whole, it's called, it's called the hypostatic union, the song. Believe it or not. <laughs> I don't know if you're now really selling this to people. They're like, I was in, but then he said hypostatic union. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That might, uh, you can, anyway, you can edit anything you want. That's the power of the podcast. We are so not live. <laughs> okay. Oh, no. I've got two other questions for you though. Okay. Okay. So when I'm listening to the, Pirate Monk podcasts, oftentimes in between parts, I'm listening to the music and I'm thinking, when is there going to be like an, and maybe this has already happened, but when is there going to be an Aaron Porter song, you know, between, you know, segueing between the sections? So are you going to stick any of the new songs from the album in between the breaks? Yeah, you know, we actually, we did do that uh, when I released an album a while ago, but I will, uh, I, I will stick a little, uh, a little teaser today uh so there you go listeners what you will hear if you like it is off the new album and if you don't uh it's the the jars of clay's back and and just it it didn't work okay <laughs> they can, i, I they can, can be honest yeah i can say that because because they're friends of the show they they won't be oh. upset <laughs> <laughs> okay and then can people get the album downloaded or how, how do they get a hold of the whole thing if they want to hear it yeah get i i don't I probably won't put any actual CDs that can be purchased anywhere because who does that anymore? But you can you can download it for free if you want on just Google Noise Trade Aaron Porter and uh, I think the first thing that should come up is the page and the new album is called uh, Waiting to See. And if you click on that, you download it. You just have to put your email address and your zip code. That does not go to any advertisers or anything. That actually goes straight to me. So that I know if I'm, I can look up zip codes and say, "Hey, I'm playing in this area. I'll send an email to these people." So that is the that mm. is the whole cost of downloading is letting artists know. Uh, yeah, you can let me know if you're in town. So I don't even know. Okay, you didn't want me to say this, but so if somebody wanted to just kick five dollars over to you to say thank <laughs> you for spending like a hundred fifty dozen hours in the. Studio, yeah, can noise, they do that through noise, that? noise trade's great. They have a little tip button. People can leave okay. a tip if they want. Uh, I, I can't like ask for that because I will admit I have enjoyed uh, a few noise trade albums that uh, I did not tip for. I feel bad for saying that. So how could I ever hold it against somebody else for just saying, hey, I want to listen to this music and I'm not going to tip me anything. So yes, you, you can tip if you want to. 
uh, and and really go to Noise Trade. We've had Derek Webb on here talking about it before. He started Noise Trade, and it's he did. Yeah, it's pretty fun to wow. just kind of cruise around Noise Trade and find there's some great artists. Um, speaking of jars of clay. Uh, Dan Hasseltine had a little side project called Hawks in Paris or Hawks of Paris. Uh, there's Hawks in mm. Paris in it. And I just, I loved it. It was like a four or five song album. So there's little gems mm. on there all the time. So if mm. you are not a, a noise trade person, go check it out and make yourself a little user fan deal and uh, have some fun listening to some new stuff. So, Sounds good. Anyways, uh, we got a special guest, uh, another San Luis friend, talking about uh, an, a fascinating topic today. So uh, let's get to that. We will be right back with Mr. Gary Weil of Life Water International in just a minute. He drives alone down the street. As empty as he feels Searching for something his books don't give Searching for something Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. It is that portion of the show where we give you interesting news and information that perhaps you had not considered. For example, did you know, Brian K., did you know that between 250 and 500,000 people die every year from influenza around the world? I did not know that. I didn't know the figures were that high. Which, I mean, that seems like a really big gap between 250 and 500,000. So right. perhaps reporting needs to be a little better. But that's a crazy amount of people when all they need is a, a very simple medicine. That's insane. But if, exactly. you, if you were to guess, how many people do you think, and the, the closest statistic I could find is 2015, how many people around the world do you think died of AIDS in 2015. Oh boy. Okay, you're putting me on the spot, and I'm not allowed to go Wikipedia this in the next uh, ten seconds. No, I just want a random guess. We'll just Let, we'll, uh, we'll acknowledge right now that this is not your area of expertise. Great. So you're probably going to you. be wrong. Now guess. Yeah. Um, oh, six million. Wow. Well, I, I am happy to report that things have gotten a little better. Uh, since the 80s Good. and 90s, so so we're at about 1.1 million people. That's so, okay. I mean, that's still horrible. Horrible. I mean, that is that is over a million people. But there is something that is bigger than influenza. There, it is bigger than HIV and AIDS, 
and that is people dying because of unclean water, water-related diseases. It is about 3,400,000 people a year in the world, many of whom wow. are children, dying mm-hmm. because of, like, dysentery kind of stuff. I mean, I'll, I'll get into more of the details, but it is insane that mm-hmm. unclean water is by far the biggest killer of human beings on this planet. So today we have asked our friend Gary Weil from LifeWater. Is it is it LifeWater International? Yeah. LifeWater okay. LifeWater LifeWater International. International to come and educate us on why we should care and what we should know. So welcome to the podcast, Gary Weil. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's those are sobering numbers, certainly. It's it's you know, it's weird because they're almost too big to I don't want to say to care about, but to wrap my mind around mm-hmm. and feel like if if there were five people that died in a car accident in my town, I think I would feel more emotionally connected to that because 3.4 million people, like what is that? That's that's the population of a small country. Yeah, one every one year. Of, yeah, one of the numbers that we use a lot is uh, to kind of make it more accessible is distilling that down to every 60 seconds a child dies from a waterborne disease. So you think about every minute as another child is another child every minute, um, which really, you know, you start thinking about how, the, how much that adds up over time. And in these things, and the crazy thing too, and these are all preventable things. We know how to actually stop all of these diseases immediately. Right. And and it's not even that difficult, right? I mean, it's not only we know, but boy, it's hard. It's we know, and duh, it can be done. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the biggest problems that we face are are you know the, these are vulnerable people in rural populations and very hard to reach parts of the world, um, and so <clears throat> that's what really makes it difficult to address is getting to people. Um, and then, and then uh, working with them in a way that doesn't, um, you know, adversely affect their community. You know, we want to partner with people so that they're making change. So, it's it's like all right. Well, oh, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I was just saying, it's just, you you can't. It's like one of those. Things, even though we know what the problem is, you know, obviously we can't just wave a wand and say, oh, it's it's fixed. It's like it, it, there's a kind of a community development part to to change behaviors um, that make people sick. Okay, so I want to get to all of that, but first, because we care about story, you're a guy that came from, you know, corporate America. You were pulling in, uh, you know, seven to nine figures. <laughs> um, okay, maybe not seven to nine. No. <laughs> but you were you were doing the you you worked for for a Christian publisher for a while, but then you were doing secular stuff, and you're an advertising guy, and and then all of a sudden you made this switch to start working for an international ministry doing this work. What was in your head? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's uh, an interesting question. I think um, <clears throat> it was an opportunity that I, I wasn't actively looking for, and um, I'd known about LifeWater. I had... Uh, uh, had friends who'd been involved with it. It's it's in the town, you know, that I live in. It's based here in San Luis Obispo on the central coast of California. And 
so I knew about the work they did and I, I loved the, the organization. Um, but this position was a marketing position. And um, when it came up, it just, I read the description. It was like, that's, that's me. Like, and I had this moment of thinking, I think I might be the only person in this city who can <laughs> do that job. So part of me was drawn to it in that sense. And as my wife and I started talking about it, it's weird. I mean, I, 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 I hate being one of the, I, well, I'm not one of those, um, you know, then God told me to do something kind of people, but there was a weird piece about this where my wife and I looked at each other and we kind of knew we had to do this. Like this is something we had to do together and for our family and for, you know, just for us, like it's like we wanted to do something that was actually make an impact in the world. When this opportunity was put in front of us, it was like there was a piece that we both had about it. Like God was just kind of saying like, yeah, you, you got to do this. Uh, so that I, I really, it was one of those very clear moments when I think I, I just felt compelled by God to take that step of faith and, and, uh, venture into new, uh, and in, into a new job and a new industry. And I will tell our listeners that the words, I was compelled by God to take the step of faith. These are not words that Gary Weil uses <laughs> Thanks, yeah, that's, or often. <laughs> yeah, that's why it even feels weird just saying that because, I mean, I've been a Christian my whole life, and but it's just all of those typical faith words. I just don't like all of those. They just feel so gross and so canned. And yet that was my, that was my experience in that moment. That and so your last job, I remember you'd take some business trips. You go where? Like you're always going to beautiful Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yeah, Grand Rapids, Michigan. So those were your business trips before, and right now you are packing for Cambodia. Cambodia. That's right. So how will how will this be different from your old business (laughs) trips at your last job? Well, uh, first of all, uh, first of all, I have to take uh, anti-malaria medicine. I didn't have to do that on my previous business trips uh where a lot of bugs so the the laws in michigan have changed (laughs) nice (laughs) yeah exactly so is the water in flint michigan worse than (laughs) cambodia water that's my other question yeah yeah yeah. that that, that is probably a fair question i so yeah i think i think um certainly this is the furthest i've ever traveled uh so going to uh a third world country that you know that's 19 hours away by plane this will be a completely different world so what what do you do when you get there like what's your purpose when when life water sends you're going with a team yeah i'm going to be going with a team and so you know i'm you know i'm the marketing guy so i don't go on a lot of trips most of our t- our programs teams they go out and they're working we have regional offices um, I guess you should probably say we, we work in Cambodia, as you mentioned. We are, we're also in Ethiopia and Uganda. Those are the three countries we work in. And we have regional staff that live in, you know, they're nationals. Um, so we really try to work with as many local uh, people as possible. Um, but our programs team that are here based in the U.S., they'll go out more frequently. For me, um, I'm going with a group that's part of a vision trip. So we'll we'll bring people who are... Um, you know, engaged in, or interested in the ministry or interested in, in learning more about uh, what's actually happening on the field. So we have a pastor, uh, one of our board members is coming with us. Uh, my specific um, 
task on this trip is collecting stories. So I'll be out there with a, a video crew. We'll be um, uh, filming videos of, of stories of how people have, how, you know, clean water has changed their lives, how developing healthy habits um, with going to the bathroom and those kind of things has helped, has helped, you know, their children not get sick anymore. So those are the kind of stories you want to bring back to people who don't have the opportunity to go visit uh, Cambodia. So what's it like? You guys go to a country and uh, like what what is the process by which you bring and, and Brian, you can just interrupt any time and ask whatever you want to. But sure. give me give me the process. You you take a team into a I suppose they're kind of village areas. Mm-hmm. So are you and talking about what, like when what? we're to to actually do the work or like when we're going on yeah. this? Vi- okay, to actually do the work. Yeah, no, to to, to actually do the work. Yeah, I um so we'll first we'll actually go and and we'll kind of scout out some new regions. So um we'll our programs team will go and work with our our regional offices and we'll go into a new area. Right now, for example, we have a team that's opening a new office in Uganda that's in a brand new part of eastern Uganda called Mayuge. So um that started, you know, months prior where we went out and met with people in those communities to kind of establish the level of need and understand what's actually happening. Um but also to kind of get a sense of uh if the community's ready to make a change. Uh one of the big uh one of our um you know the ways we approach things is that we won't you know we won't work in a community unless the community's ready to make an investment. Actually communities have to invest fifteen percent uh, of the cost of the of the water project and all that, they have to make um, changes, you know, throughout their entire village, um, like hygiene and sanitation changes before we'll we'll do a water project. So, uh, and and we want because and not because we're you know forcing them to do things, but because we really want it to be a grassroots effort. We want the community to to own their change, and and to know that they've done it themselves and done that work, uh, so that it lasts. So, that takes time kind of uh, the pre-planning to, to meet with community leaders, walk through areas to see where the, the current water sources are. So once we've kind of done all that and identified uh, a region, we'll go in and have a regional office, and then we'll start working um, with individual villages um, uh, for working on hygiene and sanitation changes. They actually, the very okay, so lot... Oh, go ahead. You got to pause there, because that, that makes total sense. Total sense that people have their buy-in, and they, they're really... They're owning their own water deal yeah. in that way. But that's just totally – how awkward is that? I mean, you guys must be really good at it. But that is weird to come into a village and be like, all right, so your hygiene. Here's what we need you to fix. Oh, yeah. And- yeah, which, like, uh, if I can inter- – like, uh, to your point, Aaron, you're coming into a village which obviously had, uh, you know, like any any village anywhere has had – generations long habits around hygiene around how to acquire water i assume around what to do with water once you've got it and you're uh it's i don't know i would think it would be kind of near the bedrock of a culture is how to mm-hmm. handle this very precious basic resource and um what life water is saying is that holy cow there's ways that a lot of these villages are doing this that are causing death mm-hmm. and you're yeah, but, uh... but even beyond, like, that's the weird cultural part. But then you're also dealing, because so many of these deaths uh, have to do with sewage, right? Like, yeah. Like, w- where people are going to the bathroom and how. Yep. So that one just feels so 
uh, almost personal and childish to come in and start telling people where to poop and pee. Like, that's got to be, mm-hmm. like, that's weird. You're talking to adults. You're talking to, so. But that, you're, you're absolutely right. It's weird. Oh, it, it, no, okay, so it's this, not just th- me. That's one of the first conversations, well, not first conversations, but at, at, when we start to actually talk about doing work, yeah, the, we have a term here that, that we use ODF, open de- defecation free, um, which I've said, I'm, I, I don't think we should probably use that uh, in our marketing. That's probably doesn't have a meaning <laughs> to it. Um, but you are just, good at this job. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great band name, though. Yeah. Like out there. Going to see ODF tonight? Yeah. Yeah. Those guys rock. <laughs> They're the, oh, never mind. <laughs> But yeah, it's the shiz dizzle. It's it's this awkward conversation to say, yeah, you're eating your neighbor's poop and it's making your children mm. sick. I mean, that's a really tough conversation to have, and um, and and to to start to understand how that is is impacting, and and so yeah, we have we have a whole process. We have curriculums that we walk through with 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 people, and so there there's a process that we go through to um to do that in a culturally appropriate way. Um, but like like you're saying, I mean, at some point you have to have an awkward conversation about poop, and um, and it, it's mm-hmm. it's crazy because here we take so much of that for granted, and you know I think about a word like diarrhea that that frankly most most people in our country giggle at the word diarrhea, and mm-hmm. uh, but this is this is what's killing people right is diarrhea. I mean that's they, yeah. when yeah. you're in these right. foreign countries. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is, I mean, you're stepping back hundreds of years. Dying of dysentery was not an uncommon thing throughout history. I mean, Henry V died of dysentery, mm-hmm. and he's one of the coolest historical figures. So, yeah, it's just something that's been off our radar. And I, the, the hardest thing for me, because I've, I've had friends who have lost children who are, you know, young, uh, under the age of eight. And it it takes nothing away from the tragedy of a 20-year-old dying or a 30-year-old or a 90-year-old. But there is something about, like, a little kid dying of diarrhea and, you know, like I said, every 60 seconds. Like, I can, I can definitely feel that even more than just globally 3.6 million people. Like, that's... Uh, yeah. just aren't yep. words for that and i yeah, can't imagine being a parent mm-hmm. where that's just a part of mm-hmm. your life mm-hmm. in in your community that's insane all right so you get them to agree and i am kind of curious but i know it's not your part of the job like i would love to understand more about a village that isn't ready that you guys have had to walk away from mm-hmm. like that's the, i i would just be fascinated to understand what was going on in those conversations or in the Mm. minds of those people but they agree they make their changes and now it's time to do water what is what does that look like what do you do well what i would say is like the the part about i don't want to gloss over the making the changes part because that's really a huge thing because that's what we're talking about having this conversation and then it gets into um the hygiene and sanitation practices, which once we once we kind of can identify that this is the problem and and people really see it and understand it and are motivated to change, um, there's actually really simple things they can do uh, that w- would make a difference. And we we have what we call our vision of a healthy village, and so um, each home uh, commits to doing 
five things. They wash their hands. Everyone washes their hands. Um, they store and use water safely, so either they're boi- boiling or filtering it if um, they don't have a safe water source. They have a bathroom with a roof and a door. <clears throat> and then uh, <clears throat> and then one that probably people don't think about as much is, is uh, dishes. So they have a drying rack, so when they wash their dishes, they can keep it up away from uh, animals and stuff. And then um, they need to keep their area clean. So they sweep their compound and kind of keep everything around the home safe and clean. So um, just kind of some five things. And then there's some basic, you know, a drying rack and this little wash, tippy-tap washing, hand-washing station that they create that they make with local resources. Um, and then so each of these homes do that uh, to, to be healthy. So they, they've kind of fulfilled, you know, that portion of, of the hygiene and sanitation part. And each home, we have, we have um, community facilitators that – that, uh, you know, kind of catch the vision first and they do that. They kind of are the first to do the healthy home thing. And then um, they help others in their community start to make those changes. So then everyone, once people start catching the vision and making changes and seeing the difference, it really starts to kind of catch on like wildfire. Um, so that's kind of, that's the big thing. And so once the village has kind of reached that critical mass, then, then, we'll, um, then we'll do the water source. So uh, to your question, that's, you know, that could be a well, so it may be uh, we drill a, a deep well there. Sometimes they have springs that are contaminated, so we'll uh, fix the spring. We'll do what we call a spring cap, and then that will provide fresh water. Sometimes it's rain uh, catchment tanks. Um, so it's all kind of what's appropriate. You know, the, we have geologists that work in the, the regions to kind of determine what's appropriate for uh, that community and to best serve the community, and then we work to um, build them that resource. Now, what do you? I'm, oh, go ahead. Well, I, we might get to this, but I remember like back in the, I guess maybe it was the 1980s or something, and they, or was it the 70s? There was this phenomenon called the Green Revolution, where they took a lot of Western technologies, agricultural technologies, into developing world settings, and it seemed like it was going to be a great plan because you go in <laughs> and you give them tractors and even relatively basic technologies that, that could massively. Uh, increase their yield on product on uh, on crops and things, and it ended up being the, the ultimate critique ended up being that um, you deliver all these technologies and then they break, and by then the Westerners have left town, and mm-hmm. the locals maybe they were using the, the tractor, but they don't really know how to fix the tractor. Is that does that ever come up with wells? I don't know if the technology is so simple that they're no absolutely maintenance is not an no maintenance is is most certainly an an issue and. Um, <clears throat> Actually, that's a good thing that you brought that up. But uh, I think uh, so. I'm going to go ahead and quote a stat here off the top of my head. <laughs> uh, but uh, there was a survey that the UN had done um, of wells in sub-Saharan Africa, and in terms of what ones were actually functioning, because you hear stories of people go out in the field and they see broken wells all over the place. Uh, they just they're just not working mm-hmm. anymore. Um, and I think it's something like um, about uh, there. There's about a 40 percent failure rate. Of, of wells in sub-Saharan Africa uh, across the board. Um, we, mm. did, we did a survey recently um, of the wells we built in the last decade in Uganda, and uh, 95% of those are still working. Um, wow. So, so yeah, we, wow. you know, we, it's, but that is such a huge thing. And one, one of the big things that um, makes a difference in that, and I didn't mention this earlier, is, is we have water committees as part of a, a well project. So, um, there's a committee of people, whether it'll be a treasurer and then uh, people, their whole job is to 
um, manage that resource. So they build, you know, sometimes they'll build a fence around it. They'll have signs in terms of when it's open. They'll, they'll lock it up at night. Um, and they collect, um, they collect fees from the local uh, users uh, so that when it breaks, they'll have uh, money to um, do repairs on it. So um, mm. it's it, we kind of build into the system like this ongoing that, that the village is this is their water source and here's how they can keep it going in perpetuity, and they have, you know, they're they, obviously at this point they've done a lot of work in their village and they're you know they're, you know, absolutely committed to generational change, and so they want to see this well last uh, for their their children. And, and so it's great. We see these photos coming in of these water committees and they're so proud of, of the work they've done. And, you know, they're so happy to show when we go out, they're so happy to show us, you know, uh, their wells and how they're, they're taking care of them. And so it's exciting to see, um, you know, see people in these local communities, you know, taking, you know, kind of grabbing hold of their future. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. There, there's a bunch of things I want to ask, but that's such a, an amazing picture of something that most of us don't have in America because we're so self-sufficient. So village ideas and village culture just is so far removed from us. But you're talking about a community of people. Is there like an average size of these villages or is that impossible to answer? Well, in some areas, I think like it'll be like 300 is, is, you know, but sometimes it's less, but that's a good guess. Yes. Like two to 500 people that all live interdependently and here they are like you need your neighbors to also have their drying rack and their hand washing station Mm -hmm. because they can be introducing Mm -hmm. the problem as much as anyone so everybody knows everybody else needs to do their part and then together they're working on something that is for future generations like as far as being a podcast about community and men coming together i i wish everybody could just see that and experience it and realize that there's like a whole lot of life well drilling that needs to happen Mm -hmm. in communities that needs to be maintained and that there's a cost and it breaks down and there needs to be a plan for what to do. Like all of that relates perfectly to actual community uh, of a heart kind. Mm -hmm. Um, But just when you're describing that, I kind of want to see those pictures and groups of people that together are so proud of this thing they've done (laughs) and that they Mm -hmm. know they're saving their grandchildren's lives. Like that's what they have that responsibility and they have that pride. Do you have any warlord problems? Because I know Dane. uh, That was my next question. (laughs) You you ask it then. Well, I was literally going to say that I, I would think that you, you'd sink one of these wells into one of these villages and all of a sudden that's that's a massive asset that wasn't there yesterday. And now you've got this gorgeous piece of technology that's producing life-giving water. And uh, why wouldn't a warlord just take over that well? And uh, I don't know what. I can only imagine the amount of um, kind of injustice that could happen once... Yeah, some unjust powers realize there's something. Yeah, I, I think in general, right, like right now, we only work in stable regions. So, uh, I see. so we haven't, to my knowledge, and I, I might be speaking out of turn, but I, to my knowledge, we, we're not dealing with that in the regions where we're in. Um, but, but certainly, as as you know, I mean, things can change fast. In um, in countries like Ethiopia, I know, you know, a while back, they there was there was some unrest and you know there was some travel concerns, and so. 
you know, th th that's definitely something that, you know, the risk that you take when, when you're working in, in hard places. But uh, for the most part, we, we won't, you know, we, we, we try, because of some of those difficulties with instability, and we, we're, we're really a development organization. We're not a relief organization. So um, we want to come mm -hmm. into a, a place where the, the community can be stable. And, you know, because, like, to that point, if you're in a region where, you know, you're, you're just in constant fear of your life, then it's harder to plan for the future anyway. Um, so it's harder sure. to do, do development work in some of these war-torn regions. Um, so, so, so that's a, yeah. that's a great, that's a great distinction. Will you define it in, in your life water definition, the difference between a relief organization and a developmental organization? Sure. Yeah. I think w when you think about r relief work, um, you know, if you, you talk about like, if there's, you know, a, a war, a war, obviously. So if you think about displaced people in a war, that's sometimes that's a little bit longer term than relief, but that's, uh, that's like a heavy relief, Obviously, things like natural disasters, um, any large scale things like that, where where you know you think about Red Cross or organizations like that, where relief work is primarily what what they're doing. Um, but it's like take care of the need right now. Like something is come in here, fix the problem. Um, that's that's a lot of you know I think in America a lot of what we think about when we're helping other countries or helping is it's come in and just fix the problem. You know here throw some money and some resources at it right now and we fix it. Uh, development is looking at sustained long-term change, um, which is really about, you know, getting, uh, you know, partnering with people, understanding their motivations, their hearts and minds, and, and, and you know, d the dignity that they have in their communities and, and respecting that and, you know, helping them make the change. Interesting. Mm. That's good. So tell me, too, you guys are, I mean, you're a Christian organization, I imagine a large number of people uh, going from San Luis around the world are of the uh, fair complexion persuasion. Uh, and is, That's not politically correct. It's not? What? Oh, darn just it. I'm, just, I'm always off with this. Lucky we've got Brian from outside Berkeley, California to tell me what I can't say. Uh, yeah, you, you can't make any commentary in any way, shape, or form. It has anything to do with skin color. Oh, good. Well, <laughs> I'm going to jump into religion from there and say that now you guys are going into Muslim areas of Africa mm -hmm. and doing yeah. this work. And right. I would think that in our current climate, there would be some assumption of that's just got to be very dangerous. And uh, does everybody just want to kill you before you, you know, build hand washing stations? What is that like to be going into a, a Muslim village in Ethiopia or something? Are they labeled the Great Satan's hand washing stations? That would be an extension of your question. That's so ridiculous. Sorry. Yeah, thanks, so thanks ridiculous. for adding a little extra layer to that. That's... Yeah, we can. That's if that hits the editing room floor, that won't hurt my feelings. Uh, you know, I, I think one thing to remember is we're you know we're really we work exclusively in very rural, poor regions. So these are very much outside the beaten path or they're out in the, in the hillsides. Um, and mm. so it's in, like you said, we're talking about villages and the 300 or less kind of people. So there's these tight knit communities um, that uh, there's a lot of, of kind of folk, uh, you know, pieces that come into their, their, their faith and their understanding of that. So um, I think when, when we come in, you know, uh, we're not coming in and leading with a conversation about religion. That's 
that's not it. Our conversation is is about health and it's about water and about meeting a need and helping um, helping them, you know, helping people in these communities to kind of rise up. And coming in from that point of view is incredibly different and you know kind of disarming in a way if if you're the conversation isn't like all right you know do do i do i need to like sit and listen to a four spiritual laws message before you give me water or there's no there's no you you always you always give the woman you give the woman at the well talk at the uh the coronation of each well (laughs) every time and everyone has to sign something to to agree that they've listened to that to it you know before they get Uh but yeah that this idea of coming in um i think is you know to be jesus hands and feet to serve first um and and then they see the authenticity of that and they see the other people uh we we try our best in the regions where we work to hire christians like so they're local christians so we want you know in ethiopia as many ethiopian christians helping their ethiopian brothers and sisters so that you know we they can see that this is you know just a, a part of life uh to follow jesus and um and so we and then that opens up the conversation in natural ways uh, as we become part of the community and in, in working through that development and they see that change. And we've actually seen, it's, it's been amazing. We've heard stories come back kind of unprompted where people, uh, there was a quote where someone said, you know, uh, the, the people from Lifewater have helped us go, f- our village go from darkness to light. Uh, and they weren't talking about spiritual things. They were talking about, about the health and the hygiene and the water. So, so they were already starting to see this, this, picture of of what it meant to to move from dark to light and and you know if i was going to be extra spiritual i could say maybe that was the holy spirit moving in and among them uh (laughs) but you can be extra spiritual on the pirate (laughs) monk podcast (laughs) but you know it just opens up those those people start to see those things um just from those interactions so um i think i think it's it's less of an issue as it's just people being real with with other people um opens up doors that's i think that's an important and extraordinary part of the story because i think a lot of what we get in the news are it dehumanizes an an awful lot of people groups Mm -hmm. and it's just like okay here's here's a group of people with a need uh let's let's go ahead and put on the record though if a village doesn't convert do you let them keep the well absolutely we serve okay (laughs) We serve everyone here first. Yeah, exactly. We serve everyone regardless of faith or or anything else. I mean, we're there to help these help, help vulnerable communities. That's what we're about and helping them help, um, change things for their, their families. So, um, and yeah, like you said, you, you start to connect with people of different cultures, different faiths in, and these are like, you know, these communities in these small rural areas, people with big hearts, um, and you know, beautiful people who love their families. And when you start to kind of, you connect, uh, you, you see, you know, it's just humans connecting to one another. And, and so faith b- becomes part of the conversation later on, but that's born out of relationship. Right. So how much does it end up costing like total cost for one village to, to have this whole program, uh, I don't know, enacted is the wrong word, but for them to go through <laughs> the kind of change in lifestyle, well put in, what ends up being the dollar amount per village? 
All right, I'm going to look this up because I'm, I'm, I have two numbers in my head. I want to make sure I give you the right one. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, and, and I want to make it the dollar amount from the non-village side. So we're, we're taking out the 15% that they're going to yeah. raise. Well, just yeah, the well, cost. You want me to do math? You know, give, just uh, do them both. Do it however you want. I mean, you're you're obviously more of a word man than a number man, and uh, Brian Kay's uh, definitely a head man. There's not a single math person on this show today. <laughs> so we'll just it was say my understanding there would be no math. <laughs> yeah, on this I did. Podcast. I did actually put that. That was in the writer for Brian to do this. <laughs> he wanted some M and M's, a cherry coke, and no math. <laughs> <laughs> I don't ask much. That seems fair. I'm a simple man. Uh, have we so wait, have we, we bought about? you enough time to find your figure? <laughs> what's, yeah. Please okay. Yeah. So, what's what's the dollar amount <laughs> for one village to end up having this whole program uh, sure. done? So, um, we we kind of break it down in terms of of giving that forty dollars helps change one person's life forever. So, if you think about every individual in a village. Um, that $40 brings them uh, f- clean water, uh, sanitation, hygiene, all that, and basically f- for life. Um, $12,000 is, is our overall Sponsor Village water project uh, kind of point. So that's the whole thing from the water source to all of the, the training to all the, kind of all, all the pieces that go into spon- uh, to the overall village water project. But then we'll also break that down like to actually do a well if you just wanted to to do a well part, you know, that part of the project, that's uh, $6,000 is, is to, to do the well. Wow. Hmm. So 12. That's amazing. Like we think I'm like, sorry, but like, like return on investment, which is a crass way to put it, I realize, but $6,000 is <laughs> not very much considering like how many lives would you say with a $6,000 well, like over the course of say 10 years, yeah. it would be pretty amazing re- kind of return on that that investment that's how it strikes me anyway more than a lot of other types of development work or species of development work i would guess am i right about that well yeah and and the the thing that's um with water is is you know it's such a foundational piece that when kids are sick they don't go to school and if they're not going to school then they're not going to be uh, ever be able to be lifted out of poverty i mean so you can trace the effects of poverty back to to waterborne diseases and so yeah. we know that these things, not only you're talking about life and death in, in the basic sense, but even if for people who aren't dying and they're just sick constantly, um, you know, this has, right, has right. an impact. Mm. Mm. Well, I will put a link to Life Water in the show notes, but if people are just listening to it without having that in front of them, how do they log on, find out more, and if somebody wanted to be a part of that, um, could could possibly do some giving and get some uh, newsletters. I'm sure you guys send out updates on what projects yeah. you're working on. So Absolutely. So how do people get in touch with all that? If you go to lifewater.org, uh, you can find out uh, more about what we're doing. Uh, like you mentioned, you can sign up um, you can do uh, sign up to receive our, our email updates, or um, you can learn more about the projects. We have project pages for um, the work we're doing in Cambodia, Uganda, and Ethiopia. So all of those info pages are there. <clears throat> we get we actually get all of our field work. Uh, the guys who are out in the field, 
they have Android devices, and so they upload data and photos from the field. So we get real-time updates every Friday from the field. So you can go into each of those countries and you can in project areas and see photos of people with healthy homes, people with a, a new water source. You can see live updates from the past uh, few weeks there. So, so could that, you basically, like, as a family, could I with my family sit down and say, oh, all right, we're going to pick one village they're just starting to work on, and then every week kind of watch the progression of the the transformation of that village? Right now, it's it's not – the information is aggregate to the region. So at this point, it, you, you get everything uh, for the, the whole region. So uh, – so the answer is no at this point. But if you're sponsoring a village, then there are periodic updates that will go specifically for your project. So you would know, you know, if they break ground and those kind of things. So um, updates do, do come for that. It's a, this would I feel like that would be a pretty cool, even getting the regional updates and watching the change in a region. That would be an awesome thing for kids to be exposed to, like once a week or every other week to get the update and to think about it, talk about it, pray about it as a family. Like that's, you can yeah. you can sponsor a child and get your letter once every three months or so, or you can watch an entire people group uh, go from death to life. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and it's, wow. it's um, just as I've been working here at LifeWater and having conversations at my house, I have a 11-year-old and an 8-year-old, and... Um, my 11-year-old daughter is just, she's been captivated by this and and uh, did a school project based on it. And so, yeah, I think this idea when, when kids hear that kids are dying, that, six, you know, one child every 60 seconds dies, I think I think that resonates with children. And they, they understand and they can see, oh, this is a kid just like me, you know. She's going to school, and and but she's sick. Like, and, like, how, I can do something to help change that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even about water. Oh. I was going to say even the gratitude of turning on the tap water or having yeah. a bottle of filtered water, like all of a sudden starts meaning something. There's some gratitude mm-hmm. yeah. attached with basic human resources. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I was going to say similar. It's just the it's so relatable. I think uh, you know we all know what it's like to have a glass of water. We take for granted that it's going to be clean where we live, most of us. But uh, it makes instant sense when you. I mean, I'm thinking about ways I could teach my own kids, like just have two water bottles, have one that's like a regular clean water bottle and then take another one and put like a thimble full of dirt into it and shake it up and say, this is what we have to drink. This is what they're drinking. Yep. And you instantly just feel the, the, uh, I mean, there's like a, a visceral kind of like yuck factor and there, and hopefully followed behind that yuck factor is a sense of, oh my, how great would it be to, uh, be able to help a village deliver the the clean water bottle goods to i i like your idea mostly but i think that you go out with the kids into the yard with a plastic bag get a piece of dog poop or poop out there and Mm. put that in the Mm -hmm. water and like if that sounds like junior high gross that is what we're talking about here right exactly no it's it's the truth it's the it's and that's probably more memorable that is more (laughs) memorable that yeah, I'm going to have to do that. Uh, that's on my list of things to do in the nice. next week. <laughs> Thanks for the idea, Brian. I'm going to have fun it's with my kids. a great summer project. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So lifewater.org, yes? Lifewater.org, or if you're listening right now and you have your mobile phone in your hand, 
You can text water to 80100. That's water to 80100 to give $10 right now. Well, look at that. I don't think we've ever had that in the 192 or three episodes. No one has had a call right now and give to save a child. <laughs> Tremendous. All right, Gary, I know you got some packing to do. Say hello to Angelina Jolie when you get off the plane for me in Cambodia. And we'll uh, <laughs> we, we will look for an update. I hope people check it out. Great. Nice talking to you, gentlemen. Thanks, Gary. And we will be right back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Pirate Monk podcast. That that was an interesting conversation. I've often wondered about Lifewater has been around since I don't know before I can remember in San Luis Obispo, but that's the first time I've had a yeah know, an extended conversation with anybody who's worked for him. Yeah, the guy who started it uh, before I was a pastor, I was a an area director with Child Evangelism Fellowship, and the guy who started Lifewater, those were the early years, was a big CEF supporter, and so Jenny and I uh, went and had dinner a few times at his house, and and that was was kind of when I was introduced, but man, they have grown crazy since those days. That was over 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. and they're still going Mm -hmm. strong. But here's what's, here's what's funny. People don't know this about Gary, and he's going to just so appreciate that I'm putting it on here. Uh, I have a few friends, including Gary, that worked at a place called Experts Exchange, which yeah. was a big, big deal in San Luis. Uh, I don't think Gary was in charge of marketing when this happened, but Experts Exchange uh, is very famous for one reason. When they bought their domain, it was experts at change, exchange.com. What nobody noticed until it started popping up on lists was that uh, experts exchange also says expertsexchange.com. And so a very serious business ended up on some very strange lists uh, on the internet. Yes, I remember that. So I feel like I he's remember. I feel like he's made a good career move, you know, moving into ministry stuff and you know, maybe somehow life water can just be sucked into such amazing uh <laughs> list <laughs> company as expertsexchange.com. <laughs> oh I don't feel like that, that, reminds me that of... was not a good plug for Lifewater. Forgive me, Lifewater people. That's why this is a only partly polished podcast that never is under the control of any 
outside forces. Hey, it's only partly monk. It's still it's still pirate. What you were gonna you were gonna say that reminds me. I gotta know what uh, expertsexchange.com <laughs> reminded you of. This is very pirate, but like the, those mishap URLs. Uh, any, I'm, you know, I'm a pastor and a therapist, but I, in coming up with a website for the therapy side of my life, I had a, you know, at one point I almost had a, a URL that was brianktherapist.com. That doesn't sound so bad. It's pretty self-explanatory, but of course, if you spell that, you kind of put the spaces a little bit different, it becomes... Brian K. the Rapist. Oh no! <laughs> Which I can't, and I cannot have been the first one that, that almost no, walked into that. That, that has it's, to be a common one. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be. It's it's out there haunting. It it's always bad when Some, it's like your website comes up on Google, and then like Megan's Law, what what predators <laughs> are in your neighborhood is the next Google search below. Exactly right. Yes. Well, with that in mind, we would love to get some uh, questions and feedback from you, our listeners. So shoot us an email at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com, and uh, we will answer your questions uh, when Nate's actually here and logs on. I don't think I have the password to that email, so just don't. Nate's required for that. But also hit us up on Facebook. We've got updates on there. Further, uh, today's episode will not be on YouTube um, because I was not able to hack into uh, Nate's account for the program we use, so we're all audio today, but the last two episodes and future episodes are up on YouTube. If you just uh, type in Pirate Monk Podcast, uh, you will get there, and you, if, if you desire to watch the looks on people's faces when things like the Experts Exchange is brought up, that's the place you need to go. So check it out, uh, subscribe to it, and it'll send you all the new... Uh, I don't, I, I, what happens when you subscribe? Do they send you notifications? I don't know. Something good happens. You you have a thirty percent yeah you have a thirty percent better chance of winning on all lottery tickets if you subscribe to that YouTube channel. <laughs> so do it. That is all the time we have for today. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be back soon, and we are your friends at the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hand and one day say I